This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on events that shape American politics and drive the images of headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS. This week, from an undisclosed location on eastern Long Island, if my voice sounds a little tinny this week, it's because of Lucy. Lucy is Lucy Live, an ingenious technology that allows me to broadcast from anywhere in the world that gets put on my Macintosh with a good microphone. And so I'm connected with Catherine Caperton at SiriusXM. We're going to have some great guests today. We have my old friend Alan Schroeder, professor of Northeastern University, the world's foremost authority on presidential debates, talking about what I think is going to be the most genuine moment we're going to have in election 2012. And then we're going to talk to Kevin Doyle. Deputy Editor, Condé Nast Traveler Magazine. They have their 25th anniversary issue out. It's a great one. And on the cover is Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton. In India, Kevin traveled 9,000 miles around the world with her to India, China, uh, and Bangladesh. And he'll talk about that trip and traveling with the Secretary of State. Now, I mentioned that I'm here in this undisclosed location. It, it's interesting. This week on Polyoptics, you know, one of the most famous venues in the White House is that picture of the North Lawn with correspondents of the major networks and others with their camera positions looking at the North Portico. They haven't been able to use it for about two years because there's been a construction project underneath. And finally, that construction project is over. There are pictures of the North Lawn once again visible, just a little bit of dirt and sod where for two years uh, construction crews were digging, tunneling, building something under the West Wing. So a little bit of history. The West Wing was built in 1902. It was modernized in the 30s. You know it's been modernized many times since. Things like Richard Nixon put a floor over the swimming pool so he could have the briefing room. President Roosevelt moved the Oval Office from one place to another, connected to the executive mansion by a ramp so that he could get uh, from the executive mansion to his office with his wheelchair. And you have to wonder that after 9-11, when the White House was evacuated, the National Security Agency uh, and others probably identified weaknesses in the West Wing. Now, we've known that there was something called the PIOC, or the Presidential Emergency Operations Center, uh, located under the East Wing that was probably built in the 50s or 60s uh, to resist a nuclear blast somewhere in Washington. But in the new dangers that threaten the White House, gas, other toxic substances that could be brought into the West Wing, they probably needed a new place of safety, but perhaps another egress route out of the West Wing in case there was an emergency. So that's why White Houses from time to time tend to put up the fences, put up the barricades, prevent people from seeing what's going on to build yet another appendage to what is the world's most famous office complex, yet one of the oldest and one of the most cramped. So welcome back, North Lawn of the White House. It's good to see you again. Good to see the West Wing portico. And I hope the reporters get back to their usual stand-up positions soon. So we're now joined by my old pal, Alan Schroeder, professor in the School of Journalism at Northeastern University, where he teaches in the area of visual journalism. And Alan has been a guest on our show before, he is the author of several books, including Presidential Debates, 50 Years of High-Risk TV, and, uh, and also Celebrity in Chief, How Show Business Took Over the White House. 
from Westview Press. Um, Alan is also, I should disclose, one of my first bosses. I worked for him when he was producer of a public affairs show in Boston at WBZ called People Are Talking back in the summer of 1984. Alan, welcome back to Polyoptics. Thank you, Josh. Sir, we were, uh, we were chatting earlier this morning. You know, it's been a, a frustration of mine, and I think yours too, that this election so far has been about very little. And when there has been substance, it's been quickly buried by sort of stagecraft and then um, sort of attack politics. And when you have two candidates and their running mates who are largely being scripted by teleprompter, uh, and when uh, you get very little sort of genuine moments on the campaign trail, I'm thinking, Alan, that, that these four nights coming up in September and October, uh, the presidential debates, more than any time in my memory, could be maybe the only genuine shot we have at these candidates? What do you think? Well, it's an interesting theory. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to, to grab onto there. I think, for one thing, this idea of the attacks and the negativity and lack of substance. I mean, one thing that, that a debate does is by putting the candidates in close proximity to each other, they they have to be more civil. You know, you're, you're not going to be as aggressive. You're not going to be as critical of someone who's just a few feet away from you than if you're doing a campaign commercial or a rally or some other disembodied act. Activity. Um, so there's there's that, and then there's the the point you make about scripting and and, and spontaneity. You know, it, it's sad to say, but debates have kind of come down to the the last the, the absolute last line between any spontaneity and these candidates, um, and and for that reason, they're they're more important than ever. And true, the debates are choreographed to a certain extent, and there are there are certain ritualistic aspects of it, but it's as much spontaneity as as you're going to get on the campaign trail these days. So the action, Alan Schroeder, begins on October 3rd, I think in Denver, Colorado, a domestic policy debate moderated by Jim Lehrer. Can you t take us through the process that the Commission on Presidential Debates has followed over the last few months or so in terms of picking locations and moderators and formats? Um, the process for choosing debate venues and moderators and formats begins well in advance. In fact, they announced the, the venues a year ago um, in October. Um, the, the, they're all college campuses, and the way it works is that a campus or any other potential uh, host has to put in a bid. They have to put up a certain amount of money. It has to be in a community that has the hotel capacity and so forth for the for the press corps that arrives. Um, and, uh, and, and there are some political considerations as well, although I don't think those are are, are absolutely key. Um, that's on the venues. That's kind of the easy part. The formats and moderators is, is I think, the more controversial piece of this. And the, the, those, are, those are kind of done um, behind closed doors. It's a fairly mysterious process, but I, uh, the way I understand that it works is the debate commissioners, there are about 12 people, get together and have regular meetings and kick around ideas, both on format and on potential moderators, and then as as the as the the debate year um, gets closer, they go in and, and make these decisions. So the the formats were announced earlier this, in the summer, and the moderators were announced in August of uh, this year. And the hope is, I think, on the part of the commission, if you announce these things in advance, you can get the controversies out of the way and and get down to the business of staging the debates. So on the venues, uh, before we leave that idea, uh, have there been repeat venues? I'm looking at the vice presidential venue, October 11th, Center College in Danville, Kentucky. Is it only my imagination, or does it the vice presidential debate seem to be sort of in the border states of the Old South? 
Well, that's a good question. I, they, they certainly have been in recent history, and Center College in Danville, Kentucky, has been a, a previous um, debate host. They did the, the vice presidential in, I think it was the uh, Cheney Edwards. It might have been Cheney Lieberman, one of those two. Um, but, you know, Missouri has had a lot of, uh, of, of presidential debates. St. Louis is kind of a popular uh, city for presidential debates, and that's, well, it used to be more of a swing state than it is now, but, but that was always kind of the thinking there. Um, you know, the reality is the the campaigns and the candidates have to spend a lot of time in these debate cities and these debate venues. So if they can, can couple the debate with maybe a few appearances or, or, or something, that makes them happy. So on some of the things that have been controversial, uh, moderators and formats, the first, the first debate, which will very much set the tone, I think, you know, you, you can win the first contest and then if you uh, it'll be hard to come back. You can continue a winning streak or maybe get upended. But but once sort of you establish maybe who's in command of a debate between President Obama and Governor Romney, it may be difficult to sort of stem a tide. And there you have a classic domestic policy debate with Jim Lehrer as the moderator. Has there been controversy around this? Well, there has been controversy about the selection of the moderators. Um, a lot of the controversy had to do with the, the racial complexion of the, the moderating quartet. Um, all are Caucasian, and so you had organizations like the National Association of Black Journalists register protests. You had Univision, which um, was hoping for a Hispanic moderator, and uh, which is hoping to entice the candidates into a debate on, on that network, dealing primarily with with uh, issues of interest to that community. I, I don't think either of the candidates has accepted at this point, but that was one controversy. And then you've got the sort of the usual um, outrage, uh, particularly from the Rush Limbaugh types who, who, who see a, a vast liberal media conspiracy at work here. But, you know, the reality is these people are chosen because they're trusted by both campaigns. The campaigns, in effect, have veto power over the moderators. So there's, there's no way you're going to get a moderator that one or the other the campaign strenuously objects to. How do moderators put their hats into the ring to sort of put their hand up and say, I'm Jim Lehrer, I'd like to do it, I'm Candy Crowley, Martha Raddatz, uh, uh, Bob Schieffer. How do those folks sort of bubble to the top in, in the event of a guy like Lehrer, uh, a multi-year uh, host of, of debates? I don't think Martha Raddatz has hosted one yet, has she? No, she hasn't. This will be her first. This will be Candy Crowley's first at the, the presidential uh, slash vice presidential level. Well, it's a great question, and, and, you know, I don't know that there's a formal mechanism, but uh, believe you me, every every Washington journalist, um, you know, worth his or her salt wants to be a, a debate moderator, so there's no shortage of, of candidates. There's no shortage of interest in that job. Um, I, I think what the what the commissioners are looking at when they go through the list of moderators, they want people who aren't doctrinaire. They want people who aren't identified with one ideology or another. Um, they also want want people that are that that are very skilled in the arena of of live television because it's a tough job. I mean, there's a, a there's a whole mechanical aspect to being a debate moderator above and beyond the the process of of you know content and selecting questions and so forth. The network that you were previously affiliated with back in your journalism career long ago was NBC. Yeah. And uh, I noticed that Brian Williams, uh, David Gregory, other NBC talent, not in the roster of debate moderators this year. Is this a function maybe of they had their great ratings blitz during the Olympics in the summer and time to give 
NBC a rest? Why is NBC not in this lineup? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, they last time around in 08, Tom Brokaw was a moderator. So I, I think they do kind of try to consciously rotate it. But there's a perception on the right uh, that NBC is a is a sort of a leftish network. So I don't know whether the Romney campaign used one of their peremptory challenges here or, 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 or whether it's just a question of Brokaw having done it the last time. Um, not sure what's going on there. Uh, Schieffer, who's moderating the last debate, Bob Schieffer from, from CBS, is, uh, was, was also the moderator of the final debate in 2008. He did a really good job in that debate, I thought, and so I'm, I'm glad to see him back around. You've been hinting at veto power and preemptive procedures. Now, this is usually not the kind of weeds that a lot of people following debates get get into, but who? how do you think that this really works, and who are the, the voices on both the Obama and Romney camp that are uh, at the negotiation table. Well, right, and this is all pretty um, sub rosa. This stuff takes place, but nobody wants to acknowledge it or, or talk about it. I don't think the the two campaigns have sat down yet for any kind of face to face discussions about the debates. That generally happens right after the conventions. But I'm sure the commission in running these moderator names um, through the mill would have uh, at least checked in with their contacts in the in the campaigns. I mean, one one of the knocks on the debate commission is that it's too closely allied with the political parties. You've got Frank Ferenkoff, former um, RNC chairman, on the on, on that side, and then you've got Mike McCurry, who, of course, was um, your colleague at the Clinton White House on, yep. the, on the Democratic side. Um, and so these guys have great contacts in the campaigns, and, and, and they can kind of informally raise some of these names or, or if there are, are any you know potential wrinkles to be worked out. Um, but then the campaigns themselves will sit down for, for a, a sort of a negotiating um, session or two that's probably more bluster than anything else. I mean, look, you've got two fairly evenly matched uh, candidates in the polls right now. Neither of them is going to be able to dictate terms. And so it's only really in the years like, you know, 96 Clinton against Dole. Clinton only did two debates that year, not three. You know, you have some leverage in that kind of a, a situation, but, but that doesn't uh, really hold sway this time. Now, we are getting into, uh, Alan, next week, the Republican convention. Uh, Mitt Romney, Paul Ryan will be up on the stage, a, a beautifully designed backdrop, assuming that Hurricane Isaac doesn't threaten Tampa. Right. Then the following week, uh, President Obama and uh, Vice President Biden have their moment in the sun. But to the beginning of our discussion, Alan, those moments are highly scripted, teleprompted. It really depends on how well the speechwriter does and how well these guys perform reading into prompter. But we're talking about these four unscripted nights, uh, October 3rd, October uh, 10th, um, and then into uh, October, October 16th and 22nd. Can you break down these four pugilists, their strengths and weaknesses, and how they might remind you of, of previous debaters? We're talking about Obama, Biden, Romney, Ryan. Absolutely. Obama, you know, like any incumbent president going back into the ring after four years, is really out of practice on debates. Compare him to Mitt Romney on that question. Mitt Romney right. went through, you know, a couple dozen Republican presidential debates uh, up until early this year. So his muscles are much better toned Romney's than are Obama's. Obama also has the challenge of, as an incumbent president, everybody defers to him. He's not used to being challenged. And you'll get him on a stage there where 
where you know he's being directly challenged, directly uh, having to account for his policies and that kind of thing. So that that's a little um, that's a little interesting. I think one point where they're comparable, where Romney and, and Obama are comparable, um, is is their their skill. I mean, I think they're both pretty good debaters. I don't think they're naturals the way a Bill Clinton was, and I don't think that they either one of them particularly enjoys doing it. Um, so I think that's a, a, a factor to consider. Um, Obama was really good, I thought, in the 2008 debates, but he was pretty low-key. Romney was good this year, but of course, look at who he was up against uh, as well. He didn't have a, a whole lot of serious competition. As we get into the vice presidentials, you know, Biden is... I, I, I'm, I'm always looking forward to the vice presidential debate, even more than the presidentials. It's the best show, no question about it, and I think this one will be, too. You've got, you know, the avuncular Biden, who's, you know, such a kind of backslapping guy, and then you've got this much more buttoned-down uh, Paul Ryan. You've got that kind of generational clash. You've got the ideological clash. I, I see that one as a as a, a really good um, a really good show for for all of us political junkies. And um, as far as their, their their skills, you know, Biden. We didn't really get to see him him much in action against Palin because he was so restrained. So he may be a little more aggressive than we saw him last time. And uh, and, and and you know, Ryan, the traditional role there is for him to be the attack dog against Obama. So I would certainly expect a lot of that. So, Alan, you're in the final weeks of summer. Uh, you've got another couple classes coming into North Northeastern University. What are you going to tell them? Uh, and and do, does a quadrennial class get sort of an interesting special treatment in a Schroeder classroom because you've got the debates and you're such the expert? What's it like coming in an election year uh, to your classes at Northeastern? Well, obviously, election year gives us a, an awful lot of material. Sometimes I feel sorry for the the students in my class who aren't that into politics because they they get um, sort of a, you know they have to deal with it whether they're they're into it or not. Um, I'm actually not teaching in the fall. I take the fall off when there's an election year in order to be able to track this stuff more closely. But believe me, the the students have been fascinated this summer with um, all of the different weird you know kind of developments in the campaign, and we've looked at a lot of the commercials. We looked at, at a lot. Of the of the photo ops and um, you know I think there is an awful lot of cynicism out there unfortunately about presidential campaigns and that's why I, I I really put a lot of stock in these debates I think it's it's sort of one of the finer moments in a campaign and and one of the moments that really still belongs primarily to the the voters and to the candidates you know jointly it, it's not about what the media thinks it's about what the candidates can can do with the voters and what kind of connection they can make so it's unique in that regard and, and I I think really important. I was fascinated, Alan, by what you said about Governor Romney's preparation for these three nights coming up in, in September and October, and about going through maybe two dozen debates, and also sort of this notion of weirdness, Alan, on these off-year elections when you've got an incumbent running, you don't have maybe the all-stars of the Republican Party. Romney clearly thinks it could be his year because he had established himself in 08. But you had uh, Herman Cain, Michelle Bachman, uh, other other candidates that all ha seemed to have their moments in the sun. And we had to sit and watch as the various cable networks all tried their hand at different formats and different evenings with different hosts. Uh, how did the 2012 cycle of pre-presidential debates strike you as compared to e earlier years? 
I think that, unfortunately, the networks that are sponsoring these things are getting so into the theatrics of staging the debates. Um, for my money, this year, the worst offenders were worst offender was CNN. Um, I, I watched one CNN debate. I can't remember which one, but it, it you know the setup, the, the 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 kind of the introduction of the candidates and the and the the, the, the pre-taped elements and all of that. Fifteen minutes before the first question was asked in the debate, they had to sing the national anthem. They had to march the candidates out on the stage. They had to introduce themselves. Um, it, it's ridiculous. You know, there's there's so much fluff that is being built around these debates when you don't need it. I mean, the format itself is is just sort of classic drama. You know, just classic conflict. You don't need to to sort of trump it up with a lot of extra stuff. Uh, so I think that's the 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 kind of the negative in in all of this. Uh, the other thing is uh, that we saw this year that that was very weird and uh, and very different was the the very lively to the point of hostility um, audiences and and how the audience reaction the live audience reaction became part of the story of these of these debates and I think that's something that you know doesn't happen at the general election level even though there are live audiences for those um, and and I think it's something for the producers of primary debates to keep an eye on you don't want the whole event being upended by a, a, a rowdy audience because all of the millions of people watching at home you know don't don't get get the benefit of, of what the debate's supposed to be about. That comes to this basic point of, of political reality today, which is, you know, you, you've you made a, a facet of your career, your understanding of debates going back to Kennedy-Nixon 1960 and prior, and that was basically uh, uh, a soundstage with two candidates and two podiums. I don't think there was a an audience, or at least no. there was an in, inaudible one. No, there was but no that, audience. But now, uh, there ha to even stage a venue, you need the Florida Democratic or Republican Party or another uh, host who will foot the bill to even open the room up before the networks can come in. What's, what are the dynamics between the realities of who's paying the bills versus what kind of format you get and, and the ability for questions to be asked and answered? Yeah, it's a great question, and I think that, that this whole question of sponsorship and what is the role of the sponsor and how much power and control does the sponsor have, um, that, that's one of the things that, uh, that makes it really difficult to stage these debates. But it seems to me that the, that the cable networks have enough power vis-a-vis -vis the campaigns and the candidates that they ought to be able to, uh, to sort of come up with their own, with their own rules and their own, their own versions of these things. Um, I don't know. I just, you know, when the when the debate becomes about the audience booing the people asking the questions, it, it becomes about intimidation at that point. It is. It's no longer enlightenment. It's just. It's just, you know, audience trying to intimidate the journalists from asking um, difficult questions. And uh, and there's something wrong with that model because that gets in the way of this whole notion of debates as we've been talking about them as being this kind of moment of transparency in the campaign. Alan, before I let you go, you know, you and I have been friends for a long time. We 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 talk about movies and television shows and popular culture, and and we uh, we share this interesting article today. Uh, you know, there's so much being made this cycle of the influence of David and Charles Koch, the Koch brothers, uh, and the um, Citizens United case and their ability to uh, create um, super PACs that put on that spend all of this money through all of these station owners to put up all of these. Uh, super PAC ads trying to affect both the national and statewide elections. And yet another Koch brother, Bill Koch, who, because you've, from, 
you're from Kansas, you have some experience with the Koch family, and certainly I watched him up in Massachusetts as he was racing for the America's Cup, but he's putting his money uh, in, a, in a different direction, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. Apparently he's, um, Bill Koch, uh, who is, by the way, the non-political member of the Koch family, so I'm sure he hates being associated with the Koch brothers in, in that sense. Um, he's also on the outs with his brothers, but that's a whole different story. But he's he's got this fabulous collection of American art with a, a particular emphasis on a lot of Western relics. And so he's building this, um, essentially, you know, Western town out in Colorado near Aspen, where he, he owns property, to uh, have this 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 display uh, for his all of his his relics and his art and uh, you know it's it's kind of the ultimate rich man's toy isn't it? I mean it's a saloon, a jail, a train station high in the Rocky Mountains. I mean I think he's the only uh, he he bought for two point three million dollars last year the only known photograph of Billy the Kid. Right. And as a polyoptic guy and a travel guy, I mean, you and I have talked about all the different places we've, we've been around the world and, and, and around the country. Uh, I think someday I'd love to get Bill Koch to invite me to his new old-style uh, town outside of Aspen, Colorado, so I can uh, play a little uh, swear Al Swearingen in Deadwood. I hope you come with me, Alan. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm on. Alan, have a great rest of the summer, and we'll talk to you again before the debates. Great. Thank you, Josh. So we left our conversation with Alan Schroeder, professor at Northeastern University, talking about uh, this article out today that says that the lesser known of the Koch brothers, Bill Koch, not Charles or David Koch, is investing some of his billions not in uh, super PAC ads, but in recreating a western town near Aspen, Colorado, near one of the homes he owns, complete with saloon and railway station and every every other accoutrement you might expect to see on the set of Deadwood. So I'm so excited to see that because, you know, not only do I like to travel around the country and around the world, if it were if I had my druthers, I could travel back in time. But I want to spend a few minutes welcoming to our microphone Kevin Doyle, deputy editor of Condé Nast Traveler magazine, who's out this summer with a great story, Nine Days with the Most Traveled Secretary of State in History, Where in the World is Hillary? Referring, of course, to our Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, Kevin Doyle completes, completed his trip earlier this year and writes about it uh, in an extended uh, article in the 25th anniversary issue of Condé Nast Traveler with some amazing photography by Mark Seliger. Kevin, welcome to Polyoptics. Thanks so much for having me. So in the editorial offices of, of Condé Nast Traveler, and you're trying to think of what is going to rise up to the to the level of your 25th anniversary cover and major feature story, how did this story come about? Well, you know, when you think about um, it's two things really. We, as a magazine, uh, we think we we love great hotels and wonderful beaches and fantastic restaurants and sexy destinations. You know, the fun of travel. Um, but we also look at travel. Um, we look at travel as a a, a powerful way to increase understanding between cultures to lift people out of poverty. So, we, you know, we look at travel as more than just, um, you know, a, a thrill or, and, and, and our readers do too. You know, they're really, in, they, one, of the, the mo, one of the things they, that they are most interested in is learning about other cultures. And so when we're looking at the, the power of travel and we're thinking, you know, thinking in, in those terms, 
and thinking about the ultimate traveler, you know, who is the ultimate traveler, who represents the power of travel, Hillary Clinton, our Secretary of State, the most traveled Secretary of State in history, you know, who traveled to 80 countries as First Lady, and now, I think at last count, 108 countries as Secretary of State, um, seemed like an obvious choice. She, you know, she sees travel as a way also to increase understanding between, you know, between cultures. She says where there's been more travel, there's greater understanding. You may not have agreement, but we get closer to seeing the world through someone else's eyes, and it's reinforcing to see the fundamental human similarities despite the differences. And so her view of travel is consistent with ours, and we thought, wouldn't this be great to, uh, to see her in action? And how hard was the negotiation to get on your trip? To tell you the truth, I was not involved in the negotiations. I, I think, you know, we... We had we had Bill Clinton on our cover about That's five right. years ago. Great, um, a great cover of him in the water, and uh, I think I have it here. It was uh, Clinton Unbound, and yeah. great story about President Clinton. So, and and again, that was you know was another power of travel story. It was what he had, you know what he's been doing since he was president, and so I think as a family, they have a, a certain familiarity with the magazine. Um, and so it wasn't, it wasn't too difficult to sell because they, 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 they're familiar with how we, you know, that we, how we treat the subject of travel, um, you know, the many facets of it. And um, I, think that they, I think that they actually were um, eager to, you know, to have us follow them around because of, you know, because of what they want to showcase. How much did you know about what traveling with the U.S. Air Force would be before you showed up at Joint Base Andrews for your flight with Secretary Clinton, uh, I guess, westbound uh, toward Asia? Very little. I'd read a couple of articles by other reporters who tagged along. Um, so, and, and then there's a, there was a great, um, a great documentary done by National Geographic, I think, um, that, that I watched online. Um, it was all about what it takes for the Secretary of State to travel around the world. So there were some shots, on, uh, you know, of the inside of the plane. Um, so I mean, I had, I had, a, I had a, the vaguest idea of what it was going to be like, but um, actually experiencing it was something else entirely. So Kevin Doyle, Condé Nast Traveler, tell us about your experience of uh, making your way down to Washington and getting on this plane. Hillary comes back to greet you, but uh, and then pretty much leaves you alone as you traverse your way around the world. Well, it was something. I mean, I think I was, you know, I was, I was focused on some reading. Um, you know, we were still on the ground, and then I, I hear a familiar voice, and I look up, and there she is. <laughs> and I have to say, you know, I'd never, um, I'd never, I'd never seen her in person before. So it was, um, and there she was. And, um, you know, it was, as I say in the piece, she, you know, she, she seemed pretty exhausted and um, subdued. But, you know, right away, um, the, the, the whole Chung Guan Chung, um, you know, dissident debacle ha had already um, begun. And one of the reporters, you know, I mean, basically she came back to say hello. You know, I think she wanted to keep it short and keep it sweet. Um, and but one of the reporters who follow her regularly shouted out a question, you know, what's going on with this, with the dissident? What are we going to do? And she said, you know, this is such a long flight 
maybe they'll have that problem all worked out by the time we land. And then she paused and she said, in fact, maybe they'll have all the problems everywhere worked out by the time we land. And it was, it was then that I got her sense of humor, which I'd heard a lot about, um, but never, obviously never really seen. Um, you know, and then she, she did. She said, she said, thank you so much for being here. I look forward to traveling with all of you. But once I close my door, I will not emerge. And she didn't until 17 hours later when we refueled in, in Japan. So while the Secretary of State is getting her beauty rest and you've got 17 hours flying west, what do you, Kevin Doyle, a very experienced traveler on all forms of transportation except maybe military, how do you pass those 17 hours? And do you talk to your fellow journalists who may be jaded travelers traveling with the Secretary at this point? Well, you know, it was we, we left Andrews pretty late. Uh, it was around midnight. Um, and they served, they served dinner as soon as we were in the air. And they, the food, I have to say, you eat very well. Um, you do. I travel almost exclusively in coach. Um, and so I'm not used to eating well on an aircraft. But the, um, the, they served, it was, very, it was like comfort food. We had tomato soup and grilled cheese right after takeoff. And it's, you know, it seems like all the plates are individually prepared. It's not something that's like prepackaged and warmed up. So it was actually very good. And then, then they, they show, um, movies just like on a regular flight and they're pretty terrible in, you know, in, in my estimation, um, like happy feet and joyful noise and New Year's Eve and oh yeah, um, Jack and Jill was particularly a, bad. And a I great was movie. wondering, I was wondering if if they do that just to keep the staff, you know, um, working, you know, because the, the movies aren't really that distracting. Um, but in terms of talking to the other journalists, no, it's everyone pretty much um, everyone pretty much kept to themselves, maybe, um, you know, were taking notes or, or working on stories and trying to grab as much sleep as possible because they knew um, that when we hit the ground, it wasn't going to stop, um, which turned out to be the case. But, you know, in terms of creature comforts on, on, on the plane, you know, it's a, it's a reconfigured 757. So I think if it's configured for commercial service, it would carry more than 200 passengers, and there were probably about 40 of us on board. So I, I love the fact that you pointed out the scratchy wool blankets because those are some of the most comfortable blankets I've ever used. Well, I, you know, and I looked, and they were, um, they were made in, I think, Woonsocket, Rhode Island. So exactly. Thought, this is good. <laughs> made, in, made in America. Not surprised. You know, glad to see it. Um, you know, and, and Clinton's staff travel in business class style seats um but they don't have enough to go around so there is a lottery and um a few of the journalists who are you know uh, who draw well um get get primo seats and then the rest of us get pretty much the the standard issue coach class seat however um you do get more leg room and a little bit more recline so it's really, it's not too bad. I was able to sleep, and a couple um, really resourceful reporters, um, they found a spot in front of the fax and copying machine, um, which is, you know, which is in front of one of the exits. And if you kind of, if you put a blanket down and you curl up in the fetal position, you can actually, um, you know, get supine and, um, 
and catch some Z's for, you know, for a few hours at a time, um, just hoping not to be stepped on. Um, but I stayed in my seat. <laughs> hey, it was a lot worse than for Marco Polo, right? Right. Hey, you know, what's interesting about your writing, doing this trip in the spring and having it come out in the summer, is that you can take the longer view, or at least have to take the longer view as you construct your piece. And so if the centerpiece of the drama on this Secretary of State's visit is the situation with the Chinese dissident, you set it up very interestingly, uh, because you say, on the television in my hotel room, a CNN anchor described the situation as, quote, a pressure cooker that's going to blow, unquote, while a column buried on page five in the English-language China Daily accused Chen of holding the diplomatic talks hostage and said that he had selfishly, quote, blown a minor complaint completely out of control. And if you think back to what Secretary Clinton said to you on the plane right before takeoff, in which she was sort of nonplussed by the whole thing, do the months as they, as they beat away since you experienced the trip to when the article on the newsstand appeared su suggest, well, maybe CNN was a little blowing it out of control, and maybe the Chinese were sort of more modest in the way they were looking at this? You know, um, I think that that's an interesting question. Um, you know, it was tense, uh, but I did see that there is there can be a disconnect um, between actually being on the ground and, you know, seeing what's being reported. Um, you know, the meetings were taking place as scheduled um, from the beginning to the end. Of course, there were a lot of negotiations taking place behind the scenes, um, but there wasn't, you know, there wasn't the drama that was being portrayed at, at the um, strategic and economic you know, dialogue. Of course, the, you know, the, the the dissident himself, you know, was phoning into Congress and, you know, there was a lot going on there. But, um, you know, in terms of what was happening on the ground, in terms of what I saw, um, it, it did seem to be, um, you know, amplified a bit in the, in the reporting. And this is one of the things, you know, I'm not a political reporter, um, but it was interesting for me to see kind of the, the disconnect. Um, you know, there, w there was that, but then there was also following Secretary Clinton and seeing, you know, how her days are scheduled. They literally are scheduled in five-minute increments. Um, and she, you know, she, they're jam-packed. Um, she's meeting with heads of state. She's also, you know, she's also drawing the spotlight to causes that are important to her, like, you know, sex trafficking and clean cook stoves, of all things, when she could be maybe, put, you know, catching a, getting a breather or taking a nap. So she fills her day. She's, you know, she's addressing, she's going to greet embassy staff, et cetera. She does not stop. She's very, you know, the sense that I got is that she's incredibly committed. Um, and so then to see, you know, because I had my Google alerts on, to see that, you know, there, there were a lot of headlines, at least in the blogosphere and, you know, in uh, certain outlets that she, it, people were shocked that she was appearing in public without makeup and without her hair done, you know, being done, was absurd. It was, you know, really absurd because here I am, you know, trying to keep up with her and seeing how hard she's working and then to see that this is what was being reported. Is that, like, there was definitely a disconnect. 
in short, what I saw on the ground and what was reported were not necessarily the same things. It seemed, Kevin, like in your conversations both with the traveling staff of the Secretary of State and with Hillary herself when you finally sat down with her, that what she was trying to explain was that over the four years in which she's traveled all of these hundreds of thousands of miles, seen to all these countries, created all of these relationships, that when you do have a problem like the dissident and you do have a 17-hour flight and you do have a good diplomatic corps, maybe it might just get resolved while people are in the air, right? Well, in you know, in the best of all possible worlds, it might. I mean, you know, I think that really what, what I took away was that, you know, the, the point that it's all about relationships. It's all about, you know, she is traveling. She's traveling the way she travels. She's meeting with these heads of state and her foreign counterparts at the pace she does because it matters, because the relationships matter, because sitting across from someone and talking to them about, you know, about whatever the situation may be, forming, you know, building a relationship, whether you agree or not on the issues being discussed, makes a difference. And that if, you know, if she hadn't, if they hadn't had these strategic economic dialogues, over the last four years, and this, and this, you know, uh, diplomatic um, debacle had happened, you know, we would have been in a, the United States would have been in a very different position, trying to negotiate, you know, for for this this dissident to first of all um, stay in China and you know and study. Uh, you know, and be left alone, basically. And then once the Chinese government agreed to that, having him change his mind and say, actually, I want to go to the United States with my family, it, it would have turned out very differently had there not been a foundation there, um, had there not been formalized, you know, formalized dialogues where, you know, the United States and China get together and talk about, you know, talk about everything from the environment to business to you know, to intellectual property and piracy, et cetera. Turning this now to the sort of aspects of, of Condé Nast Traveler, uh, I have to say I was so pleased that this trip brought you to the Diotai State Guesthouse because that's where I stayed with President Clinton when he visited Beijing, I think, in 1998. And, you know, Lucky I, you. I, I, um, I'm one of those travelers, Kevin, maybe you are too, when you get to stay at a the rare opportunity to stay at a Mandarin Oriental or a uh, Four Seasons, you might strip the bathroom of all the, the cosmetic products and maybe and maybe the memo pads. But Diutai had these great memo pads with sort of a leather bound cover, and it said Diutai State Guesthouse with a little bit of, with a little pad of paper in. It. And I said, I just got to have this for my desk at home. So I was so pleased that you were be able to describe the flora and fauna of that. Uh, tranquil place inside the tumult of Beijing. Yeah, well, you know, we didn't stay there, but, um, and that was my first trip to Beijing, and I have to say that, you know, it was, it, it was such a, a contrast, because, yeah, you leave the tumult, you're so, you're so close to Tiananmen Square, and, you know, all of the madness, and yet it was like, it was so tranquil, so peaceful, so beautiful, I couldn't even, I couldn't believe it, I was like, this is Beijing? Now, the, you describe one thing, Kevin, uh, sort of a, you have such a lovely cover for the um, 25th anniversary issue with Hillary sort of in profile in India, but you say that the cover almost didn't happen. What, what, what was the snafu? 
Well, you know, we were originally going to shoot the cover in Beijing, and so the, um, you know, the the location had been scouted and set. Permits had been gotten. Um, the photographer had been flown in with his assistant. Um, and let's just say that um, the the secretary's schedule changed and no longer allowed for um, for us to shoot in Beijing. So we had to um, we had to find another location. Um, and from Beijing we went to Bangladesh, and from Bangladesh to Kolkata, and from Kolkata to Delhi. So um, we ended up. You know, it was um, the secretary's. Um, uh, I guess she would be she be chief of staff. Huma. Huma. Um, Huma Abedin. Yeah, yeah. Remembered uh, visiting this tomb, the, uh, this tomb of a Mughal emperor in Delhi, um, with her family, and it turned. You know, it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and it's absolutely stunning. So, um, fortunately. The you know the secretary staff um, have a lot of um, let's say influential people on their speed dial, and they were able to secure permissions and um, we got the photographer there and you know it's you've got a very 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 small window when you're dealing with the secretary of state so um, I watched Mark Seliger trying to uh, prompt her as she walked across how how did the photo shoot itself go. It went better than any of us could possibly have imagined because when she showed up, she was, you know, she was ready to go and um, she was a phenomenally good sport. Um, she she was game, you know, for anything. So it was like, you know, Mark, the photographer, had a, you know, like a, a, a leaf blower that you'd use to blow your, your leaves into piles in the autumn. And so he had handed it to someone and uh, had them, blow, you know, blowing it on the secretary. And she just stood there and took it and, you know, asked for direction. Like, what do you want me to do with my hands? How, you know, how many different ways are there to put your hands on your hips? You know, give me some direction here. So she was a great sport. And then, you know, there were this, there was this really steep flight of stone steps that were fairly perilous. And he said, let's, you know, I want to go up. I want to go up these. Let's go. And she, she didn't even pause. She's like, all right, you know, and up, up we all went. And um, it, it just, it actually went seamlessly. It was, it was incredible. Of course, we had a lot of concerns, you know, what's the weather going to be like? What what is she going to look like, et cetera, and everything everything turned out perfectly. So we were very fortunate, and um, again, she was such a good sport about the whole thing. So for twenty five years, the motto of Condé Nast Traveler has been truth and travel. And you quote uh, the secretary saying to Mark Seliger, or maybe yourself, uh, "What can you do with an airbrush? Uh, can you take <laughs> off ten years?" On second thought. You don't need to take off 10 years. Just take off three and 10 pounds. So you've got a beautiful cover shot. Any airbrushing involved? Nothing was taken off. Nothing was taken off. That's great to hear. Hey, look, i got to say, uh, this is the 25th year of Condé Nast Traveler. It also coincided with my 25th college uh, reunion this summer. Uh, so 1987, this mm -hmm. magazine debuts, uh, a totally refreshing publication for a kid just out of college who's looking forward to seeing the country and seeing the world. The whole notion of what Condé Nast Traveler represents is something that has stuck with me for a quarter century. You've got this amazing four-page pullout in the center of the magazine uh, talking about the short history of the world, 1987 to 2012. What, I, I just loved going through all of the statistics, brought my seven-year-old through it. It was fascinating. Uh, 
how does that put together, and what what's the feedback you've got so far? Well, you know, the magazine is just hitting the stands, so we don't have too much feedback yet. Um, it was, as you can imagine, it was quite, you know, it was quite a chore um, to put together, and we spent the better part of a year deciding, you know, what's going to go on it. Um, you know, how, how are we going to lay it out? There's also, in our digital edition, there's an interactive version of it that's, you know, that's animated. Um, but we're really, really, really pleased with the issue overall, and, um, and particularly with that, you know, with that feature of the issue. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that the feedback is going to be pretty positive from our readers. You know, I'm reading a little bit uh, online, Kevin, about you, and I think we share sort of this love of the smell of jet exhaust in this bizarre way. Uh, my listeners may want to know, how does a guy get into travel writing? Can you give us a little more background on yourself? You know, I graduated um, from college the same year you did, and I went home um, for the summer, and there was this magazine called Condé Nast Traveler on my parents' um, coffee table, and I picked it up, and I looked at it, and I thought, you know, um, well, here's one magazine I know I won't work for. Um, I think it was Christopher Buckley going down the Nile with a no, going down the Amazon with a princess or something. And I thought this is way too expensive, way too inaccessible, you know, to a, a 21 year old. And um, and I came to New York and I started knocking on doors. And it was the first, it was actually the first interview I got. And um, and I've worked here ever since with just a couple short stints outside because I've always loved travel. Um, and there's no better subject in the way that we treat it. Um, because as I said, you know, we look at it in terms of, in terms of, you know, increasing understanding between cultures in terms of, you know, ways to lift people out of poverty in addition to all the fun and sexy stuff. So, you know, I just, um, it, it's just the, the ironic thing is that it was the one magazine that I knew I wouldn't work for, and I've spent almost my whole career here. I'm very glad about it. Over the 25 years, what has been your favorite hotel with a fireplace in the room in it? It's tough. It says, there are two of them. One is the Lodge at Dunebeg, and the other is actually in Northern Ireland, and it's a place called Ardtara. And both of them have fabulous rooms and fabulous fireplaces. Both noted. We'll put both of them <laughs> on my post for the uh, for the show this week, and uh, look forward to visiting. I have to go to Dublin about once a quarter, and had some wonderful trips to Northern Ireland and Ireland with President Clinton. So, would love to get back there sometime. Kevin Doyle, deputy editor of Condé Nast Traveler, uh, with the cover story in the 25th anniversary issue, capping or continuing a 25-year career at the magazine. Congratulations on a great story and a great cover. Uh, and good luck down the road. Many thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. You hear us each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124, POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter, at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. POTUS.